Uh, this morning, we uh, are going to continue in the series through Mark. We started a couple weeks ago, and a couple weeks ago, we got to look at a picture that Mark genuinely wanted us to begin with, and that was the coronation of Jesus at his baptism, the coronation of the cosmic king, the universal king, the prince of peace in Jesus' baptism. And as soon as the baptism took place, instead of having a ticker tape parade for him and rushing him into Jerusalem... He's immediately ushered from that point by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy and ultimately to defeat him. Why? This was very important. If he could establish his authority over the enemy and over the darkness, over the demons, at the beginning of his ministry, then his ministry had clout. And it would be bookended with his eventual taking on our sin, suffering at the cross, dying and then resurrecting, ultimately defeating the grave entirely. So his entire ministry was based around pushing back the darkness that was keeping people enslaved. And so at the beginning, at the baptism, you see this picture of heaven open up, the voice of the Father, the seal and approval of the Spirit. All of I can just imagine the angels standing and applauding while all demons stand and shudder. As James 2 says, Mark goes past a couple of the miracles that happen in his life chronologically to jump straight into a picture in Mark 1 verse 21 that he wants us to see. Because Mark is not playing around, he's not taking time, he's pushing straight into the heart of the matter. And he wants to highlight something. He wants to highlight that the darkness is entirely outmatched by Jesus. How many of you grew up playing sports? How many of you play sports now? Okay, I coach sports. I I ended up coaching my children. Uh, I remember coaching five-year-old basketball. (laughs) And I remember watching the babies on my team standing right here in front of me. You know, they're excited. They want the ball. And they all want the ball together. Um... And, and at that time, I, I remember watching in all my kids in my jersey, and over their heads, I see this, this massive figure walk in with a full beard, uh, the opposing team jersey on, throws his keys under the bench, and, and he does all but dunk as he enters. And I went, uh, I'm going to need papers on that guy. You know, I have a feeling I know why he chose number 17 for his jersey, you know, This kid comes in as if he is, we're entirely outmatched. This kid comes in like a superstar. I remember playing as an opponent. When you step on the field, okay, or the court of competition, and you are playing superior talent, you know it. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You hope that this is that day. This is your only hope. That this is that day that nine times out of ten you're going to lose, but you're hopeful that this is number one, that this is it right here. I walked in, and a few of my friends, we decided we wanted to play basketball just to get back in shape a few years ago. You know, we just wanted to do a few games of pickup in the local league. I, I haven't played uh, competitive basketball since eighth grade, Okay. I was never that good anyways. I could shoot a little bit, but like, we're just hanging out. So we get on the court and I look and I see 
the point guard bring the ball up, and I notice he's got a handle that's like next level, okay? Next level is beyond your level, right? Okay? I watched him, and I, I played college baseball, so I know what next level looks like. I immediately went, oh, no. You know, we are entirely outmatched. As he's coming up the court, someone fouls. I stopped for hey, man, where'd you play ball? He's like, I was a four-year starter at Belmont. I went, oh, my gosh. I, I haven't played competitive basketball since eighth grade. I'm guarding a D1 point guard. <laughs> this is not going to be fair. I asked, okay, while, while I'm on the subject, uh, the tall guy in the middle that my friend almost fought with, who's a lot smaller and scrappier and just a lot dumber, like, what about that guy? Oh, yeah, he's a member of the Irish national team. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm trying to get a little exercise and the team we're playing are college athletes at the D1 level and Olympic athletes, enough said. That day did not go well <laughs> at all. It didn't go well. And I believe that the only way that I can help us relate to what demons were feeling the moment Jesus shows up on the scene is that. They were entirely outmatched, and that's what Mark is trying to let us know, that they had no power or authority against Jesus. Mark 1, uh, 21, it says this, They went into Capernaum, and right away they entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and cried out, coming out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? Is this a new teaching? One with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. So before we begin kind of unpacking these points, and today I'm going to ask you just to stick with me, okay? I want you to stay with me as we kind of take this picture for what it is. There was a response by everyone present. Everyone was amazed, okay? The people were astonished. They were wondering what's going on. The demons were amazed and they shuddered in panic. Number one, the people didn't know him, so they wondered about him. The moment they saw this, now you need to understand this picture. This picture is really important. It's not uncommon Synagogue is a word that means place of gathering. There were about 500 during the time of Jesus in Jerusalem. And for a rabbi, their classroom was the road. So like they would travel from uh, synagogue to synagogue teaching on the Sabbath. Their disciples who were following them, first century blessing, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, was because all along the way from synagogue to synagogue, they'd be teaching their disciples. So Jesus, like most rabbis who were itinerant, 
itinerant, moved from place to place teaching what they had learned. And it says that they noticed something different about Jesus' teaching. He's one who taught with authority. What this meant was Jesus would say stuff. He would say things as a quote as if it were entirely true and quote no one else. This was different. Every other scribe, Pharisee, rabbi would show up in a synagogue and they would say, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi says this, Rabbi says this. They would make quotes sometimes in one of their sermons of eight different rabbis and they would do it in such a way that left the people unconcretely certain as to what they rabbi taught. They just knew that this rabbi was authority, that they were more highly educated, they were a priest that these people depended on to get close to God and so they would say you know rabbi this says this and rabbi this says this you choose who will be your rabbi. Leaving the people confused, uncertain. It was a strategy of the religious elite to teach in parables considered a sophisticated, a sophisticated way to teach because only other really highly educated people knew what they were doing, knew what they meant when they taught in parable. The people often were left in distress, uncertain, completely dependent on the rabbi. Jesus also taught in parable, but in his parables, the people had a tendency to understand what he was talking about because his ministry was logical. It wasn't ethereal. It wasn't esoteric. It was concrete. It was true. Jesus would walk in and drop the mic and go, this is true, boom. And people would be like, well, who's that a quote from? No one, me. Wait, what? And, and here's the thing. Like, I know as a preacher, I quote a lot of people. I read a lot of commentaries. I, I lead a lot of studies. And I, I like to give credit where credit is due. But the... The reality is, like Jesus didn't quote Billy Graham. Jesus doesn't quote John Wesley. He doesn't quote Rabbi Hillel. He doesn't quote Charles Spurgeon. Why? Because they're all going to quote him. And he shows up and says, this is true, done. And here's the greatest part of this entire picture. The moment he does it, just as the people are going, wait a second, we've never seen anything like this. This is weird. I mean, this guy speaks as if not only he knows what he's talking about, but he's the final authority on things before he can say anything to the contrary, before anyone else can say anything to defy him. It says... They were astonished at his teaching because his teaching was one of authority, not like everyone else they'd heard, not like the scribes. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in the synagogue. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you are. The first testimony in the Gospel of Mark of who Jesus was as Messiah comes from a demon. Hello? It doesn't come from people. It doesn't come from a disciple. The first testimony that John Mark points out about Jesus as Messiah, the cosmic king, the king of the universe, the prince of the peace, the one who is final authority, the one true God, comes from one who will be defeated by said king. It comes from a demon. The demons see him and they shudder. It says in James 2, at his very name, they flee. 
They fear him. They shudder in his presence. They had reason to be afraid. They were terrified of his authority over them. I, I need to point this out. I think this, there, there's like this teaching that's been misconstrued. I want to take us back just to what the Bible clearly says about demonic uh, uh, dominion. It's temporary. It's not eternal. It's temporary. And we are powerless just like they were against demons apart from Jesus. But listen, demons never attack Jesus. They freaked out because Jesus came to attack them. Hello. They don't attack Jesus. They don't even take his life in the end. He willingly gives it. Jesus comes on the attack. He's tired of watching his people who were created in his image be thrown to and fro, stolen from, killed even, destroyed their hopes by the enemy who's been allowed temporarily to wreak havoc in their lives. And they allow it. Even these religious leaders under demonic coercion or oppression, under leadership by that, love the whispers of the demon going, if you just leave them confused, they'll have to depend on you. If you just leave them wondering, you're the authority. That makes you superior. That means you get some of the glory. And guess what? They loved it. But guess what? They were being led just like the demons were. In, uh, let, me, let me skip ahead here. This will not be on your screen. I just want to read it for you. This is from Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre. And said to him, this is what the Lord God says. Listen closely. We'll play a game. You were the seal of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. Carnelian, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, lapis, luesli, tur- turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. You were prepared on the day that you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub. For I had appointed you as such. I created you and I appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked on fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness came into you. Who is he talking about? Say it louder together. Say it. Satan. The created, the appointed by God, and the fallen. And every demon with him. Under his coercion, listen to what he says. So I expelled you. Though the abundance of your trade was filled with violence and you sinned, I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you as a guardian cherub from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. Why did it become proud? Say it with me. Beauty. Because of your beauty. 
For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before all kings. You profaned your sanctuaries and the magnitude of your iniquities in your dishonest trade. So I made fire come from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who knew you and among the people's were appalled at you because you became an object of horror that will never exist again. For anyone who has been under the guise that Satan will reign in hell, you need to understand he is awaiting punishment for anyone who is lost. He is awaiting a punishment from the Father because he tried to grab glory from the Father just like any lost soul. And he will suffer like all demons will suffer in the end. Hello? From Isaiah, your splendor has been brought down to Sheol among the music of your harps. Maggots are spread out under you. Worms cover you. Shining morning star. He was known as the angel of what? Light. How have you fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations? You've been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will send to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of God's liturgy assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol in the deepest regions of the pit. Demons, point two, knew who he was, and they shuddered. Why? Because they, like Lucifer, were created for the glory of God. They worshipped at his throne. They surrounded his throne until under coercion and influence of the evil one, the one whom found, found to be evil, who desired, I want glory for myself, and became proud because of his own Beauty and wisdom thought himself an intellectual, an intellectual tower to the Lord and desired to be worshipped alongside of him. Listen, I know that this seems like, okay, there's a lot of teaching today that doesn't even mention the enemy. Why? Because that's a strategy of the enemy. The more he can distract you from the reality of who he is, the more he can keep the church comfortable and distracted. If he cannot take your salvation, he can keep you being, from being effective in the lives of others who need to be saved. The reality is this. He became proud because of his own beauty. He became proud because of his own intellect. I know we're talking about Satan, but we might be talking about you. We might be talking about me. Anybody here also think you're great? <laughs> the reality is, once everyone in this picture in Scripture started to clue into what was going on, once they knew, they were all amazed. Everyone was amazed, it says. They were astonished. Not only at his authority and his teaching, but the, the, the way that the demons knew who he was and his authority over them. That they could do nothing Against him. All their lives, they had avoided people who were demon-possessed because they didn't want to bump with him. They didn't want that demon to transfer them. They didn't want to be tortured. Now comes a picture where Jesus tortures demons. They, they're amazed. They were amazed at Jesus. 
And if they would just trust that the hero was here, the closer they could be to Jesus, the more power they would have. We are completely, listen, just like they were, completely powerless against the realm of the dark apart from Jesus. He is like a roaring lion seeking him who will devour, Scripture says, that he seeks to do this, steal, kill, and destroy from you. Does that sound like someone who loves you? He wants to do nothing but ruin your hopes and dreams. And he wants you to suffer the same fate that is awaiting him. But he's been given temporary dominion over the earth and wreaking havoc on people. It is temporary, not eternal, temporary. He's called in Ephesians, the power of the prince of the air. How many of you have ever heard the terminology Paul uses in Ephesians that says, we were enslaved to sin? Okay, I'm going to try to unpack both those pictures for you right here. Here's an illustration of what Paul is writing to. During their day, and it was common even till just years ago for us, slaves did not own themselves. I don't know if that's news to you. They were not free. And they were owned by a master. They were owned by someone else. And he says, they are like anyone who is not in Christ is a child of wrath, and they are owned. So, for anyone who has grown up with this picture in their minds of some cosmic tennis match between the enemy and Jesus, and we're just trying to choose which team we'll be on, the Bible completely eradicates that picture, dissipates it. If you're not a child of God, it says you are immediately a child of wrath. So if you're not on his team, you're on the enemy's team. And what he's saying is slaves will be brought into the marketplace with a ring through the nose and on a chain. Anyone ever heard of a chain gang? Here's what we're talking about. They'll be led by their master into the marketplace for sale, for profit. They would stand there and wait for someone to come and choose them. Oftentimes you had people who were of the way, who had heard the truth of Jesus, who were done with all the lies and everything else. They would see this and they go, no, people deserve to be free. And they'd run into the marketplace. Someone would be brave enough, bold enough to run in by themselves and cut the chain. And the slaves could then have a choice to run free and follow their freer into the wilderness to live free. And what would happen nine times out of ten, watch, they would stand there. In the marketplace, someone hits the chain and they, free, like, what do we do? And they take a step towards freedom. They take a step towards their freer to follow in the wilderness and then they stop. But I don't want to live my life on the run. I don't know what that means. I don't know what the wilderness is. I, they might capture that guy and kill that guy. I don't, so though I'm not free, I know what this life is. And they would wait for that chain to be run through their nose again. That's why the Bible says, like a dog returning to its vomit, do not go back to your old life, but live fully in the new life that has been given you, freed, completely freed. How many of you have ever heard, misery loves company? It's the strategy employ of the enemy. And when we are in misery, we allow ourselves to be his company. Because even though the people were amazed, many wouldn't be saved. They, they didn't know what freedom looked like. They knew what bondage was. They were enslaved to sin and they were more comfortable in their bondage, so they stayed bonded. Though they were amazed, though they were astonished, many wouldn't be saved. But listen to me, listen. 
that doesn't have to be your fate or mine. Many demons were amazed at Jesus. It says that. The demons were amazed. They were astonished at Jesus. But they had their chance. They could not be saved. They couldn't. They made their choice. They were cast out when they decided to grab glory for themselves. And nothing could change that. They have an ultimate fate awaiting. They are having their time right now. That's what happens here. They're having a party on earth destroying and stealing and wreaking havoc on people who could become children of God rather than children of wrath. And when Jesus shows up, they go, hold up. I know you. What are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us? We're having a party. Why are you the buzzkill here? We can do nothing against you. You have ultimate authority. We used to worship at your throne. The only reason we are doing this is because we wanted a little bit of glory for ourselves. Let me ask you, how many of you know someone who wants a little glory for themselves? How many of you know that person sitting in your seat? How many of you have ever been asked in church, I want you to make a priority list of like where God falls and you find yourself embarrassingly but often, far too often, if you're honest, he's somewhere like four or five. A ploy of the enemy is this. Everything that the, that the Lord does, everything that God does is eternal. He's our one true king. So, when you are saved by him and set free, you are forever set free. Amen? That's what Scripture says. So if the enemy cannot take that from you, if he can't take that back from you, can't place you back in his camp, back in as a child of wrath, if you've been given name child of God, you'll never be child of wrath again. If he can't take that from you, what can he do? He can distract you. By making you incredibly comfortable so that you don't worry about anyone else who's right now a child of wrath in your life. If he can make you incredibly distracted, he'll make you incredibly ineffective in offering hope to anyone else. Who might be amazed by Jesus but won't be saved. Why? Because to be saved, it takes submission. To be saved, it takes contrition. To be saved, it takes an understanding that Psalm 34 said, I wanted glory for myself. I wanted to sit up thrones next to you. Forgive me. Even though that's who I was, you still came and you gave your life to die for me that I might be yours. Even though I challenged you for your own throne, you still loved me enough like no one else on the planet to come and die and take what I deserved. You you did that for me. People can stand amazed at it. But like the rich young ruler, he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come after me. Give up your life. Give up your aspirations. Give up your will. Give up this desire to make your name great. If we're going to sing about dry bones coming alive, then we've got to be willing to be dry bones that are willing to be breathed on. If we're going to lean back in the Father's arms, we've got to be willing to let him mold and shape us and lead us however he wills, however he desires, because we are his, we are no longer ours. It's not 
our name that is being made great. It is his in the life of the church. Many will not be saved because they do not like that thought. I believe God desired that all be saved. Everyone created in his image was created for the glory of God to give glory and true homage to our God. But how many of you experience that sin and self-worship is incredibly intoxicating? And it is keeping people in your life in bondage even today. The demon could not be saved. Too many humans just will not be saved. Why? Because I really like that glory. Hello? Anyone who has been saved, anyone, anyone here who remembers, though you didn't deserve it, you came to that place where you recognized your life stood opposed to God because you were trying to receive glory and you were living for yourself. You didn't know any better. You were just trying to worship something because of what you were created. So you chose to worship yourself. You're idolatrous. And you come to the place where you learn about the unconditional love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. You hear about what he has done. And you come to the place where you go, that's what I want. I need forgiveness. I want to be known as his. I want to move from death to life. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I did that. You've done that. Okay. Here's the thing. Too often, I think we don't understand what Jesus was saying when he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you daily take up your cross and come after me. I have been in too many services throughout my life in church watching people come in, shake their heads, agree with the sermon, and go, that was amazing. That was, wow, that was a good sermon. And do nothing different with their lives. I've seen so many people go, man, amen, that, man, that is good. Okay, what in you has to be put low? What has to drop today? What is God trying to get from you because it continues to be put up in front of him so that you can take a percentage of the glory? Hello? What in you needs to die today? What needs to be put at the altar today? It's not a once, like, life change happened at salvation. Amen. What Jesus was saying, you're going to have to do this every day. Your flesh is incredibly intoxic, intoxicating. You're going to need to come here daily and repent. Hello? I think Jesus loves that we're amazed by him. Amen? Demons are. So I think that Jesus is grateful for our amazement, but doesn't want that. What he wants is our souls. What he wants is our obedience. What he wants is all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our strength. What he wants is our person. I think he appreciates our amazement. But that's not what he wants from us. I think he wants you. I think he wants me. I think he wants us to come to the place where, where we hear the truth and, and we yield to the truth. We stop stiff-arming him. We find ourselves going, I care a little bit too much about what other people think. I need to stop that. I care a little bit about, too much about what people say I look like and I need to stop that. I need... I care a little bit too much about, you know, what I do as defining me, and I need to stop that. You see, this is why it was astonishing to all these people who, when Jesus shows up in the synagogue teaching with authority, do you know why? Because just like us, they defined people by what they did and where they came from. 
They had been taught by the religious leaders that everything holy came out of Jerusalem. Even though Jesus showing up at the scene fulfills all scripture saying that the Messiah would come out of Galilee. Galilee was distant from Jerusalem. The religious leaders were saying nothing, uh, nothing holy can come from anywhere but Jerusalem. So Galilee, there's no way. They were using this to coerce the people to not follow Jesus, let alone Nazareth. Nazareth, this little un, unknown, insignificant town. How could the Savior come from here? But yet this unknown, insignificant son of a peasant who's a carpenter shows up and teaches authority, quoting no one around him. He just says, this is the truth. Says who? Says I. And then they witness demons and darkness subject to his authority and people are amazed. The question is, will we like them simply be amazed or will we submit? Will we be amazed by that and led to the point of action? Or will we suffer the same fate of the demon who cannot be saved, had their chance, while we still have opportunity? And if you are saved, I'm thankful. Look, I'm saved. I know that. I know the day that my face hit the floor, undeserving, because I knew what God had taken for me. And he introduced me to a love that I otherwise didn't deserve. I know what I deserve. Anyone else know what you deserve? And in the grace and the mercy and the love of God, I got to become a child of God. I got moved from death to life. I got to be enlisted in his army that we just sang about. I got to be enlisted in his royal court alongside him to lift his name. Not mine, it's his. It's his. And every day, I wake up, my flesh is weak and it's tempted to try to take a little bit of glory for myself. Anyone know what I'm talking about or is it just me? That's what banished the demon. Hello, can I say that any clearer? Daily, we have to repent of that. They didn't know him. But once they did, they were amazed. The testimony that you first see in Mark was from the one that was about to be defeated. The demon did know him. And they could not be saved. Listen, if you're here today and you're hearing the words of my voice and you go, I'm hearing this, maybe for the first time, it only takes one time in sincerity. If you're going, that's me, I've been, nothing I do, everything I go for, I, I can't get a bigger house, I can't get enough money, I can't have the prettiest girl, I can't seem to get content. Listen up, this is important. Your whole life could change from here on out. What your circumstances are trying to point to is Jesus. Your lack of contentment, your lack of fulfillment, what it's trying to point to is Jesus, the one who came to be the hero, the king that has authority over the darkness that could fulfill you once and for all. And he just desires you to be loved by you and to love you back with an unconditional love that you've not experienced on this planet. And it takes one sincere moment where we, we accept that. We say, I don't want a throne I want you. I need forgiveness for trying to worship myself 
and in my sin challenge your throne. I don't want that. I don't want to suffer the fate of the demon. I need to be saved. One moment, he went to the cross one time. It takes one time in sincerity, and you can be saved. For anyone who is like that here, and you have been saved, amen. Who, who's been saved here? Amen. Are you living like it? Are you grateful? Is there a gratitude that pours forth from your life because he can't help but be anything but the number one priority in your life and others around you see it? You have peace, you have hope, you have joy, you have contentment that everyone else is looking for in a world that is deceived because you daily hit your face and go, God, forgive me, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. This morning, Jesus has full authority over the dark and the demonic. We have no authority apart from him. We will just be overrun unless we stay close to Jesus. Let him indwell us. Let him save us. Put our life and our effort in him and in his kingdom. And sometimes the church just needs a decent reminder of that. Sometimes I need a decent reminder that my bones have grown dead and cold when they were intended for more. I need him to breathe on me that they come to life again. Amen?